Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Hosea and Joel. We're way back in history now. Right. Same kings as Isaiah, but he's in the north. But we're in the north, yeah. Now, we just did Daniel, and Daniel is during the Babylonian captivity. And you would think that Hosea and Joel are then sequentially coming after. They are not. They're well before the Babylonian captivity. In fact, they're well before the Assyrians take the northern tribes. So let's start with the history. We've got to put Hosea and Joel in their time frame and know a little bit about what's going on. So take it away, Mike. Background on Hosea. First of all, I just want to say, I think part of the reason why we're covering these little books at this point is because they're grouped in what's called the Twelve. The Jews who put this stuff together grouped these 12 prophets, and they're typically called the minor prophets, but they're not minor in the sense that they don't matter. They're minor just in the sense that their writings don't take up a lot of space. You see, on the Isaiah scroll, his 66 chapters take the whole scroll. But in Hosea and Joel and Amos and some of these other prophets, those 12 prophets don't take up a lot of space. And so from here on out, Come Follow Me is going to cover a couple of these books every week. And then we're going to be done. We're going to get to Malachi, and then we'll have the intertestamental period, and the next year we'll be in the New Testament. So with that in mind, Hosea is back in time to the time period of Jeroboam II, and this is up in the north in Israel. And if you remember, Israel and Judah have split. The monarchy splits under King Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And so kind of the main tribe that's showing leadership and leading out in the north is Ephraim. Ephraim has settled in the north, and so after the split, Ephraim is kind of calling the shots up in the north, and Judah is kind of calling the shots in the south. Now, Judah is the name of the kingdom, so we're going to hear Judah a lot. Sometimes it refers to the kingdom, and sometimes it refers to the tribe, but we're going to hear Ephraim a lot, and Ephraim is one of the leading tribes in the north that was taken by the Syrians where Hosea is. Hosea is a prophet in the north contending against the wickedness of Ephraim who is leading that whole group into apostasy. Exactly. And so Hosea is beginning his ministry probably not much earlier than 760 B.C. This is right about the time of Jeroboam II and his reign. The kingdom of Israel only has about 40 years left, and then Assyria is going to come scatter them. And so Hosea is really one of those prophets before the beginning of the scattering. His message has a lot to do with Israel prostituting herself, and he's going to call the Israelites a bunch that, quote, whore after false gods. And so during this time period of his ministry, he's prophesying during the reigns of probably more kings than any other Old Testament prophet. There are about six kings who are on the throne in the north for the remaining 30 years of Israel's existence before its fall. And none of these kings is really notable for being a great king. My guess here is that during this time period, living in Israel was probably pretty dangerous, and their fortunes are waning progressively. And so all these developments are happening and are being discussed in the book of Hosea, 
which appears to proceed pretty much more or less chronologically from the 750s to about the 720s in the order of his oracles. And so if you look at the the front end of it, he's kind of talking about the complacency of the early days of his ministry. And then if you get to chapter 7 and in chapter 12, there's this reflection of some desperation of some foreign affairs and some problems. And then it just kind of unravels. That's kind of what we see in the book of Hosea. We don't really know where he's living in the north. It doesn't really state it. And there are some individuals that think that Hosea may have had contact with Amos, but we don't know. The, like the Bible doesn't say, but he's a contemporary of Amos. And so that's kind of the big picture historically. Once again, six kings, Israel's kind of on their way out. They're going to be captured in 721. Now, just a little bit about the language of Hosea. A lot of scholars basically say that there's some tricky stuff happening linguistically, and it presents textual problems. And the speculation we have as to why is that this was a book that was written by a prophet or the scribe of a, of a prophet from the north, and that this book eventually comes down into the hands of scribes in the south. If you remember, when Israel's taken captive in 721, we don't have their stuff. Like if you read the Book of Mormon, you read about these prophets in First Nephi 19.10 that Nephi is quoting, and a couple of their names are Zenic and Zenus and Nehem. And I think those are northern prophets. And Hosea is a northern prophet. And so scholars speculate as to why the language is so degraded. And their speculation is that the book was taken from the north and then given into the hands of scribes in the south. And that the scribes may have tampered with it or it may have been amended in its transfer. But remember, the people that are giving us the Old Testament are the core group of people that have scribal ability and scribal schools in the South. The Jews are the ones who are maintaining the integrity of these texts, and the texts of the Old Testament are edited, redacted, before and after the exile. And so Hosea has been through some hands. And it's probably not exactly the way that it read originally. I think we just need to sit in that space. Now, there's going to be some verses you come to and say, what is this? Like, why does it say kiss the calves? Or why is he so angry with Gilead? And I'll just talk about it briefly and say, okay, here's why this verse reads this way. We think I'm going to stop occasionally in the book of Hosea and say, okay, let me talk about this verse and let me talk about why it's tricky and explain kind of the background. Now, Bryce is going to talk about themes in this podcast, and then, of course, we'll get into the weeds on some of these as well. So we're going to kind of handle this non-sequentially, just kind of jumping around a little bit and giving you the best ofs, the best of a theme or the best of something that's unique to Joel or Hosea, because there's a lot that's repeated. In general, Hosea and Joel cover the same four main themes that we've seen repeatedly. And so your students, your children, the people you're talking to may have a tendency to say, wait a minute, we've done this, and they may check out. So what Mike and I are going to do is just kind of acknowledge the repetition, acknowledge what's the same, and maybe give you the best of that theme, but then focus on what's really unique to Hosea and Joel. What what do they have to offer that maybe we haven't seen so much in the past, and we're going to focus mostly on that unique material. But we'll just kind of jump around to do it. 
So let's start with the best of what's the same. So we've kind of seen four main themes throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And those themes are the goodness in God in extending an invitation to come back to him. So we're going to see God's character again. So we'll do the best of Hosea and Joel as they highlight the goodness of God in inviting Israel to come back to him. The second theme was their backslidingness their refusal of the offer. And what do we learn in their rejection of the offer to come back? We'll do the best of their rejections of God. And then the third theme was the future, the latter days. Both Joel and Hosea will spend a significant amount of time prophesying of the glorious events of the future, because as they saw apostasy in their own people, they looked to the group that would be faithful. And so we'll talk about the very best of their prophecies of the future. And then the fourth theme was each prophet taught something about what that prophet was going through, what Isaiah himself was going through, that Jeremiah and his friends were going through. And so Hosea teaches us a great lesson because he himself was asked to marry a prostitute as an example of what Israel was doing. So those are kind of the repeated themes. So let me start with the best of God's character. What do we learn about God in his extending to the northern tribes an invitation to come back? And there's a couple that are worth pointing out this week. The first one is in chapter 6. The Lord says in verse 6 of chapter 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I think this is worth pausing to talk about. It's not so much that the Lord wants us to go through the ritual of, say, sacrament or to go to the temple and get the names done. The Lord is interested in the effect of those ordinances, that they are supposed to make us more merciful and bring us to a knowledge of God. Therefore, if I'm going through the rituals, if I'm offering burnt offerings in Israel anciently, and the offerings aren't teaching me anything about Christ himself or about me overcoming the natural man and needing the Lord's help to do so, then I've missed the point and perhaps should stop offering the offerings. That's what the Lord said to Isaiah. I'm sick of your offerings because they're not yielding the result that they need to. And that is the knowledge of God more than the burnt offerings, or mercy more than sacrifice. Jesus is going to address that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He will say, not everyone that comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Many will say, Lord, have we not, and then they're going to list all the things they've done. Have we not done these things? Didn't I do my ministering? Didn't I speak in sacrament? Didn't I go to the temple weekly? Didn't I partake of the sacrament? And then Jesus will profess. Now, Joseph changes verse 23 to, you never knew me. In other words, if you go through those things and it doesn't lead you to him, you miss the point of doing them ministering is about learning to love people and Jesus. And if you're not doing that, you miss the point of ministering. 
going to the temple is about a loving relationship and developing that relationship with God. So I think that's the best of what Hosea teaches in terms of the character of God. By the way, Bryce, this is right where I go if someone says to me, Mike, you have five minutes. You have five minutes to teach Hosea, this is the core, because God wants chesed. He wants that covenant love because that's who he is. He wants us to have that love for him because he has that love for us. And chesed is that love that's just enduring. It's the love of that sweet old couple that you see at the park, and they've been married for 60 years, and they just have such tender love for each other. Or the love that a mother has for an infant at three in the morning when the infant is crying, and she just gets up and she forsakes her comfort and her sleep to take care of that young one. That kind of covenant love. It's the love of that spouse at the bedside of his dying or her dying spouse as they're going through the trials of cancer. And that kind of covenant love can only be learned by experience in the mortal condition. And God wants us to experience that and cultivate that and grow in that. And remember, historically, this is the downsliding of Israel. Israel's on its way out, and it's having some issues with, at least from the Southern perspective, like I'm just acknowledging this, the Southern perspective and the scribes that are writing some of these oracles and the prophets that are giving these are denigrating the North and looking at them as following after false gods. And that big picture is the theme of Hosea, and it's drenched in the image of a marriage and an unfaithful spouse. And this man, Hosea, is the type of the Lord, where he is calling out to his wife that's being unfaithful, and he just loves her and wants her to, quote, return. That's Hosea 6.1. Let us return unto the Lord. Just come, because he has this hesed for her, and God has that for us, and, and we're to cultivate that. He wants us to have that for him. Now, we got to talk a little bit about this idea of a prophet marrying a prostitute, and then we'll talk about what we learn from Israel being the prostitute. Yeah. I think modern readers of Hosea really get hung up on this idea, did Hosea marry a prostitute? And I think this is a, a question that if I was teaching a gospel doctrine class, the people in the class are going to want to ask. Because it says that in verse 2, the Lord said to Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and the children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Back to that theme that Jesus is the faithful husband and his bride is the church. Now, when the bride is faithful to him, she is the beautiful bride, the woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, wearing the stars on her head. That's the faithful bride. But when she cares more about someone else, when the church does not stay faithful to Christ, she is the whore. She's left him. It's that major theme that's causing the Lord to actually tell Hosea to take a wife of whoredom as a symbol that that's what Israel has done. Israel has left her faithful husband. So I think big picture, I would look at this as a type. My approach is always typological when I get into chapter one, and it's drenched in the image of a marriage and an unfaithful spouse. And so big picture, chapter one introduces the type that Hosea is the Lord and Israel is the wife. And so this scholar said this about this verse. 
For the land commits great whoredoms by forsaking the Lord means that the whole of Israel is engaged in idolatry. It is a national sin and their very way of life. Each person in that nation, male or female, married or single, young or old, is engaged in a lifestyle that has nothing to do with God and everything to do with being in the world. And so Gomer, as a citizen of that thoroughly wayward nation, is described, just as any Israelite woman could be, as a wife of whoredom, precisely because she is a typical Israelite, and this is an indictment in itself. God has commanded Hosea to marry a woman who, by reason of being involved in the endemic Israelite national unfaithfulness, is prostituting. To marry any Israelite woman was to marry a prostituting woman. So rife was the religious promiscuity in Hosea's day. And so essentially, he marries this woman named Gomer, and then they have three children. And these children are types. They're names that are depicting what's going to happen. And if you remember when we talked about Isaiah, Isaiah does this. And so the first is called Jezreel in verse 4. And that name is a word that just means God sows, but I read it as he's like scattering the seeds. And it's not footnoted. Yeah, it's interesting. The other two are, but this one's not footnoted, and yet this one seems to be the harshest message that you're going to be scattered like a seed. Yeah. And then we get to the next child, which is a daughter in verse 6, Lo-Rama, not having obtained mercy, and then Lo-Ami in verse 9. And verse 9 is literally not my people. That low preposition in Hebrew is a negation. And Ami is just like my people. So I think big picture, I would look at this as a type, but I know that many people want to take this literally, and I totally leave them open to that because chapter 3 unpacks some of those difficulties. So we'll look at that when we get to chapter 3. But my approach is always typological when I get into chapter 1. So with that in mind, the question I now have is, okay, what do we learn from this? And how do you tackle this, Bryce? So we've seen that theme before about the unfaithful wife. But what I love about the way Hosea handles it is later on in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully, for she said. Now, this is, I think, the best lesson to take away from the way Israel responded to the Lord's plea to come back and be a faithful wife. She said, quote, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. In other words, the reason the woman apostatized from Christ is exactly what we see in Lehi's dream, that she thought there was greater happiness in an imitation than in the genuine article. In Lehi's dream, it says that the tree was designed to make one happy. So why would anyone go into the building if the tree was designed to make you happy? If the fruit of the tree was sweet above all that is sweet, why would you ever go into the building? It's because you got fooled into thinking that something else, an imitation, is a greater happiness. And if you think about people who are leaving God today, leaving the church and leaving God, many of them think that something else will make them happy. She said, I will go after my lovers 
that give me my bread and my water. But here's the thing. In verse 7, she comes back because she says, Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it is better with me than now. And later on in chapter 13, verse 9, is this beautiful idea, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. In me is the greatest way for you to be happy. And so here's, I think, the point that Hosea is trying to make, that what God wants for us is our greatest happiness. God wants nothing more than what he knows is our greatest happiness. Now, we may resist that and go after a secondary, lower happiness, but many of us come to realize it's an imitation happiness. It doesn't compare to the true happiness that God is really offering, that what God commands is in our best interest to make us the most happy we can be. Therefore, to go pursuing, to go whoring after lesser bread, after less wool and flax and oil, and to drink water that is of a lesser quality is silly because the bread that God offers, yes, it may come with some challenges, but so does the other bread. But God's bread is designed in its very heart and core to lead us to the greatest happiness that God knows we want. Therefore, why would we leave? And I think this is what Peter meant when so many people were leaving Christ and he turned to Peter and said, will you also go away? And Peter said, where would we go? He basically is saying, I'm not going to leave because this is the way. Exactly. And so she went after her wool and her drink and her oil, but then the Lord hedges up her way so she can't do it. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, none is going to deliver her from mine hand, and she loses her mirth, and she struggles, but then she comes back in verse 16. Thou shalt call me Ishi, and no more Bali. And the footnote really kind of breaks that down if you look in the footnote. And so then in the end of the chapter, verse 19, the Lord says, I will betroth thee unto me forever, and I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness. And then we have that loving kindness again coming up, that chesed. And then I will have mercy upon her. It's coming up again in verse 23. So then when you get to the third chapter, the Lord said unto me, go and love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord towards the children of Israel. And so I bought her for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and half a homer of barley. And then it says, and it's an interesting verse, I said unto her, thou shalt abide with me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. And then the King James reads, thou shalt not be for another man. So will I be also for thee. And I I think that verse three can be read, especially, and we break this down in the show notes where you can see the construction of the Hebrew. We literally break it down to where it can be read a different way. And I think this is significant. So here's uh, my translation here. I said unto her, 
you will dwell with me many days. You are not to commit fornication, and you are not to be for man. And also, I will be like this to you. And so what do we see here? I think one of the things we see are four instructions that Hosea is to give to his new wife. Hosea tells her that she is to stay with him at length. That's the first instruction. The next thing he says is she's not to practice prostitution. She's been bought and her sinful life is now over. His next instruction makes clear that she's not to have relations with anybody else. And Hosea has bought her, and she has no choice in the matter. But then the fourth instruction may well have been a complete surprise. She is told that even her husband has no intention of being intimate with her. This is clearly the sense of at least the textual bits of the Hebrew. And so she's been brought from adultery and prostitution to a state of complete chastity and even abstinence in marriage. In other words, she's taken from one extreme and made to conform all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And so the reader is already beginning to see what's in store for Israel. It's a different kind of life that's going to come up in Israel. And that's really the next bit of this chapter. So we go from this extreme in verse 3, and it really doesn't manifest itself in the King James. But in verse 4, Israel is going to be without a temple. I really think that's the low-hanging fruit that we can just clearly pick out of verse 4. The children of Israel are going to bide many days without a king and a prince, and then without a sacrifice, an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Now, there's a lot of commands against building an image or a pillar, I think is a better translation for that word image in verse 4, a metzebah. It's a piece of stone that the early patriarchs clearly associate with trees and worshiping Yahweh. But then later in the Deuteronomistic editing, the metzebah are denigrated generally, and I geek out about this extensively in the show notes, but just know that I think the author of this verse is saying that that's a bad thing. But then we have some good things in here. So the good things are probably going to be the ephod. And the ephod was that pocket that was on the high priest's chest that had the Urim and Thummim. And so by implication, it doesn't say this, but by implication, what verse 4 is saying is you're going to be without a king and without a temple. You're not going to have uh, revelation. And so you're going to go into this state of being cut off from my presence. And then look in verse 5. Afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So this is kind of how I read this. I read these verses 3, 4, and 5 as kind of a stage of progression. I'm going to take you out of this extreme state of idolatry. I'm going to bring you unto me, but it's a sterile marriage in the sense that there's not going to be a lot of fruit. Verse 4, you're going to go through a period of time without a temple, without revelatory experiences, but then you're going to return. And then David will be your king. And I see this millennial in the sense that that's Jesus. I see that as a millennial prophecy. And so what I really like about this is verse 3, 4, and 5 are all written in code, but they're all, like every one of them is multiple chapters in Isaiah, or the Doctrine and Covenants really fleshes a lot of these ideas out, and it's written in abbreviated code. So I really like that. I really think that those three verses say a lot of things. I like that too, Mike. Let's do another best of the nature of God as it's revealed in the book of Hosea. And this is the discussion I would have if I only had a few minutes to teach one thing in Hosea. It's this one. 
Notice that Hosea is a prophet in the north, and the chief tribe, the birthright tribe, is Ephraim. And so they have to be the ones that are leading them into apostasy, leading them astray. And so you hear this lament throughout Hosea about, oh, Ephraim. In chapter 5, verse 3, oh, Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. Everyone's following you, Ephraim, and you're leading this. What am I going to do with you? Verse 9, Ephraim shall be desolate. He's focusing on Ephraim in verse 14, I will be unto Ephraim as a lion. In chapter 6, verse 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? This is a parent wrestling with what to do with that rebellious child who's leading everyone else astray. And then in chapter 7, verse 11, Ephraim is also like a silly dove without heart. In chapter 8, verse 11, because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin. And that leads us to chapter 11. What am I going to do with Ephraim? Now, verse 8, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? I should. I should just forget you. What you're doing to me would cause any parent to just kick you out. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? By the way, since we're right there, if you're reading this and you're confused, how shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Just write in your scriptures Genesis 14, verse 2, and Genesis 19, 24 through 29, and Deuteronomy 29, verse 23. Those cities were in the coalition with Sodom and Gomorrah in the War of the Kings in the 14th chapter, and in the 19th chapter, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And so the author of Hosea 11, by implication, is saying that those cities were destroyed. The Bible doesn't say they were, but Genesis 19 opens up that possibility that they were. And so I think Hosea's perspective is, God's going to wipe you out like Sodom and Gomorrah. You're being like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? Should I wipe you out like I did Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I let my covenant child be destroyed? And then verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. In other words, men have revenge. Men get boiled up and anger, and then they lash out. I don't. I am God and not man. What does that mean in our everyday lives that he is God and not man? Let me just throw three out, three discussions I would have with my children about what does it really mean that we worship a God and not a man? I think the first one is, what he's saying here, is I don't have the emotions. I don't react out of emotion like men do. Men get angry. Men get resentful. Men hold a grudge. Men get tired. I'm tired of doing this. God does not. He never gets tired 
of helping us. No matter how many times, just last night I was teaching a class on repentance about inviting Christ back in, tearing down the mountain so that Christ rushes back into my life. And a student just shook her head and said, but but what happens if we just keep pushing him out? Does he ever get tired of rushing back in? And that's what he doesn't do. I think she was saying, I would get tired. I would get tired of doing that. But that's number one. God doesn't react to us like human beings would. He doesn't react and get tired of helping. He doesn't get resentful. If I push him away and then invite him back in and then push him away, he doesn't say, oh, we've done this before. I'm not doing this. He rushes back in every time because he is God and not man. He doesn't react sometimes like human beings do. Number two, the other one I would talk about is God doesn't run out of time. Time is a human being mortality problem. So much of my life is time-driven. I have to rush and get things done because the time is running out. I'm running out of time. But God is not in time. I love this quotation from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He said, how can God attend to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment? Notice that the whole sting of it comes from the words, at the same moment. Most of us can imagine God attending to any number of applicants if only they came one by one and he had an endless time to do it in. So what is really at the back of this difficulty is the idea of God having to fit too many things into one moment of time. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along, and there is room for very little in each. That is what time is like. You and I tend to take it for granted that this time series is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. See, there's the assumption that God is like a man. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself is always moving on from past to present just as we do. But God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him tonight at 1030, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet, which we call 1030. 1030, and every moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. He has all eternity to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. God is not hurried along in the time stream of the universe. He has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. I think that's a beautiful thing to talk about in terms of, I am God and not man. He is not rushed and he doesn't run out of time. 
Let me do one more. So three things that I would teach. The third one is God does not judge like men judge. Sometimes when you've been sent to the principal's office, you know what's coming. When you go to timeout and you're waiting for a parent to come back, you kind of know what's coming. And it's almost always a shaming, hurtful experience. That judgment brings a healthy dose of shame and criticism. And I'm going to walk away feeling degraded. And some people even get the idea that facing God will be a shaming experience. But this is where I would quote that wonderful verse in Hosea, I am God and not man. He does not judge like humans judge. Let me take you to John chapter 8, to the woman taken in adultery. Now, they're trying to trap the Messiah. They're asking Jesus to judge this woman who was taken in adultery. He says, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So yes, she has violated the law of Moses, but you are not the ones to stone her. Now notice what he's saying. There was only one person in that group who qualified to stone her, and he did not. He was saying, she has violated the law of Moses, but I am not going to throw a stone. Human beings throw stones when they judge. God does not throw stones. She was rebuked. She was told to change. She clearly was held to a standard. But he did it in a way that was not shaming or condemning or throwing a stone. He was able to inspire in his correction. And that's what we need to understand. So many of us dread facing God because of our imperfections and our sins. But I am here to say that he is God and not man. And that in interchange with him, would leave me glorifying him, lifted, clearly knowing the standard and clearly knowing what I need to change, but lifted by the exchange. God judges without condemnation. So I think you could have some wonderful discussions with a class or a group or your children or even with a spouse. What does that mean when he says, I am God and not man. One of my absolute favorite phrases from the Old Testament, and it comes from Hosea. Beautiful. Chapter 10 of Hosea has some things that can be a little bit complicated. So let's proceed through some of these ideas. Israel is an empty vine. That's Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. That's pretty self-explanatory. But then we get into some really interesting things, and I want to talk about some of these difficult things, because I think that's why many people come to this podcast. And so let's go to verse 5. Verse 5 says, "...the inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth Haven." Okay, what's that? "...for the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it... For the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. 
Uh, yeah, that's literally what it says. Okay, that verse five can be a little bit confusing. And then verse six starts, it shall be carried unto Assyria for a present to King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. And now remember, the word of Samaria is the same as Ephraim or Israel. So we're talking about the north. Verse eight, the high places also of Haven or Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. Okay, basically verses five through nine are just loaded with things that readers are going to read that and say, okay, what's going on? And then go to verse 13. Verse 13 is pretty much self-explanatory. Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies. But then go to verse 14. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled, as Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel in the days of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. Okay, that can kind of be confusing as well. So let's go through this and look at, and look at what's going on. First of all, we think that Beth Haven in verse 5, we think it's a derogatory name for Beth El. So Beth El was a border town in Israel where the calves were set up by Jeroboam, if you remember way back in Kings when we talked about the splitting of the kingdom. Because it would have been on the way to the temple as they came out of Israel and into Judah. That's where he wanted to put a imitation temple so that they stopped and didn't leave Israel. So Bethel was that southern border as they left Israel. Exactly. And so all the its, if you if you look in verse five and six, it and the priests thereof that rejoice on it and the glory thereof, because it is departed from it, all of that is the bull of Beth Haven or the or the calf. And so if you read it that way. What we read is that these calves or these icons that were sacred to the Israelites are going to be taken by the Assyrians when they come and raid. When the Assyrians come and raid the north, they're going to take the calves of Bethaven or the calves of Bethel. Now, who's King Jerob? Like, that's kind of confusing. Like, what's going on with that? Jerob can be kind of complicated. If you go back to Hosea 5.13, it reads, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jerob. Yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound. Now that you in the Hebrew is a second person plural masculine. The, the, the suffix on that is you guys. It's not you as in you singular. And so verse 13 is coming at the north and the south. And we see some of this because historically, and, and I geek out about this in the show notes, so you can just go there and read it. But historically, what we have here are different time periods when the north and the south reached out and they sent political emissaries to the Assyrians to help them. And the Lord's saying, just like he's saying with Isaiah, don't trust those guys. You cannot trust the Assyrians. And Jerob, we don't know who that is. This is what Robert Alter says. He says, the term King Jerob is obscure, but it may be a proper name, or it might be a peculiar formation from the verbal stem that means to quarrel 
or to contest. And so the context in these verses is this idea of turning to a person in power for help. And so just know that if you read this stuff on King Jerob and you're like, I don't know who that is, just know that other scholars, they're not sure who he is either. But the idea, I think this is what's important. The idea is the Lord is saying, don't go to outside sources for help, come to me. Okay, so with this in mind, go back to chapter 10, and we've talked about it, we've talked about Jerob, we've talked about Beth Haven, we've talked about the calves of Bethel. Go to verse 9. O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. Just look in your footnote and go down to Judges 20 and circle that. Now it's also in Judges 19, and that's a really tough story in the Bible. This is the story where the Benjaminites brutally assaulted a woman and killed her, fulfilling what only Sodom sought to do. And so this is an allusion, I think, to a totally depraved society. They're so wicked that they act like the worst of the worst of Sodom. I think that's really what Hosea is trying to talk about. Mormon would have called them, quote, without civilization. That's what he said of his own people that needed to be destroyed. They were without civilization. Yeah. This is not good. And so it's code speak, right? If you were an ancient person and you lived during the time of Hosea and you heard Hosea, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. That would just make so much sense to them. And it would be like a stinging rebuke. Okay, finally, I want to go to the bit at the end of chapter 10 where it says in verse 14, Therefore shall atonement arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled, as Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel in the days of battle. Okay, what is that? Okay, first know that we don't know what happened in Beth Arbel. There's no report in the Bible of the great slaughter there. But if you read verse 14, it certainly is depicted as a brutal battle. And we don't know what happened there. And frankly, we're not sure who Shalman is. Some scholars look at this and they see this as a possibility that it refers to the Assyrian emperor, Shalmaneser. And there's a high chance that that could be it. And others see that the individual could be King Shalom, he's a king in Israel who assassinated his rival, basically ending the Jehu dynasty. And you can go back and you can read that in 2 Kings 15. It's possible, but here's the problem. That taking of the Jehu dynasty doesn't describe this kind of destruction that's going on in verse 14. So it really is enigmatic. Like if I was a teacher of a gospel doctrine class and somebody said to me, what is this? I would say, you know what? We really don't know. But there's a couple possibilities. Now, if it is the emperor of the Assyrians, the Assyrians were brutal. And they certainly were that type of army that would do those kinds of things. But remember, that's in the future, at least for Israel. This is in the future. Israel hasn't been taken over by the Assyrians yet. But I think big picture of this entire chapter really is verse 1. Israel is an empty vine. And because she's an empty vine, she's not being fruitful. These horrible things are happening. And I understand, I totally get that these verses, especially verses 5 through 10, can be kind of tricky. But I just wanted to make sure that we talked about that because it's in Come Follow Me. And I think if, if you're teaching it, it's good to kind of know the ins and outs of what these are talking about. 
So with that, let's talk about the Latter-day prophecies. Let's do the very best of prophecies of the Latter Days. We've seen that consistently throughout all these prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, now in Hosea, we've seen that they turn their eyes to the Latter Days and they talk about the group that will not fail. So let's go back to chapter one of Hosea. Remember that he called his first son Jezreel, which means to scatter. Now in their case... Ephraim was going to be scattered. In those days, it meant that he was scattering them to the nations, kind of as a, okay, you don't want to be with me, I'll let you go type act. Watch how that changes in the latter days. But the best of the prophecies, chapter 1, verse 10, I will number the children of Israel as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured. Kind of Joseph Smith's prophecy that the church will fill the earth. Verse 11, this was very unique to them because they're a divided kingdom. Judah and Israel do not get along. But in the latter days, verse 11, then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. That was chapter 1, verse 11. Jump to chapter 2. I love this one. Speaking of Hosea marrying a prostitute because Israel was an unfaithful bride, verse 18 of chapter 2, in that day, again, that's our day, in that day will I make a covenant for them. And then verse 19, I will betroth thee unto me forever. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Now, notice verse 22 and 23. We're back to that idea of Jezreel. Early on, Ephraim was sown to the world because Ephraim wanted to be like the world. But now we get to our day. Notice the very end of verse 22, he mentions Jezreel. But then in speaking of how he will sow us today, he says, I will sow her unto me in the earth. And I will have mercy unto her that have not obtained mercy, and I will say unto them which are not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. I like the idea of Jezreel being mentioned because in the latter days, Ephraim will again be scattered, but this time as missionaries to go gather them out, to go gather the people that have not been his people. And to bring them home, and he will say, I will be thy God. You get that very different image. In chapter 3, verse 5, in the latter days, notice that emphasis, in the latter days, they will seek the Lord and David to be their king. That's a beautiful prophecy of the latter days, that we are seeking the Lord and seeking David as our king. Jump to chapter 11. Verse 10 and 11, they shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the West. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria. And I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. Now they're going to be taken into Assyria. And that's a war image. They're going to be taken into Assyria as captives, as victims. But someday this image of coming out of Assyria as a dove is a beautiful latter-day image, I think. 
that modern Israel will come out of Egypt as a bird, free. Isn't that the image of a bird is free, coming out of Egypt, free as a bird, and that we have been reborn, and that our captivity has given birth to a kind, gentle creature, full of love and peace. That's not how we went into Assyria. Now, remember, I'm from Ephraim. So my ancestors went into Assyria, and I guarantee they weren't a dove. But we, modern-day Ephraim, are coming out of Assyria, and we must be as a dove. I love that image of the latter days. By the way, since we're in this chapter, look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Matthew's going to quote this and recontextualize it to mean that Jesus is the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. That's what Matthew does with the Old Testament. The New Testament authors are going to read these passages, and they're going to see the fulfillment in Israel, but to them, the gold star is when they see it in the fulfillment of Jesus. And we call that retextualization or repackaging of Scripture, and we're going to see more of these next year when we get into the Gospels. Yeah. Let's just do one more. Chapter 14, verses 4 and 8 are beautiful prophecies. Verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. Now, remember how Ephraim, all throughout Hosea, oh, Ephraim, oh, Ephraim, what am I going to do with you? Ephraim is the rebellious child that's leading everyone astray. But modern day Ephraim, our day, You and I, who are descendants of Ephraim, are saying, what have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard him and observed him. It's that same idea. I went after the false bread. I was fooled into thinking that there was a greater happiness outside of God. But modern Israel has to say, we have learned over time that there is no God but our God. There is no bread but his bread. So that's the best of the prophecies of the latter days from Hosea. Now with that, that's kind of a great little jump around summary of Hosea. Now let's turn to Joel. First, a little history, and then we'll do the best of Joel just like we did Hosea. Okay, so... The words that are in Joel don't really give us any information about when the book was written. Its opening verses lack the customary reference to whoever's the ruling monarch at the time. Most of the time when you read these, the author will say, I so-and-so prophesying during the time of such-and-such, and then it will kind of give the prophecy, but we don't have this in Joel. We don't know what the time period is. And so given all these difficulties, commentators have dated the book anywhere from the 9th century to the 5th century BC. So it's wide open to interpretation. Some scholars have turned to linguistic clues to establish the book's date. And so over time, you know, we know this, that languages change. And so over time, they look at this and they they kind of see this in the realm that's consistent with some of the other books like Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which are what are called post-exilic books. And so if this is the case, it's probably dated to around 500 BC, making it one of the latest of the prophetic books, but we really don't know. And so big picture, what we do see here is we see Joel's apocalyptic style 
And his message is pretty clear, and it's basically this, that God's going to bring judgment to the world, evil's going to be destroyed, the righteous are going to be blessed with fertility, millennial peace, and happiness. And my take on this book is it's full of the apocalyptic vision. There's a cosmic battle, dualism, the good guys versus the bad guys. And the author of Joel is kind of taken out of current circumstances. It's almost like he's brought into the space of being in an otherworldly existence. And we talked about this when we discussed a little bit of the writings of First and Second Enoch in the apocalyptic literature, where Enoch is taken up to the presence of God and he's seeing the screen or the veil from God's perspective, and he's outside of time. And he kind of sees the past and the present and the future as one eternal now. And so if we read it that way, Joel's kind of outside of time, very much apocalyptic, very much about God's power to redeem. And remember, the apocalyptic or that idea that's manifest in some of the apocalyptic texts is the foundational approach of Christianity. The Christians are going to take the Old Testament and they're going to read it through the lens of the apocalyptic in that Jesus is the cosmic king. He does represent the forces of light, and the forces of good are going to triumph over forces of evil. And so I think big picture, that's kind of how I would approach Joel. Now, I have two major takes on Joel. I think Joel is answering the question that the earth asked in the days of Enoch. I am positive that Joel had access to the writings of Enoch, and Joel, whether he saw it himself in vision or he's responding, I think he's responding to the question the earth asked. So I'm going to take you to Moses chapter 7, verse 48, and it came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth And he heard a voice from the bowels thereof saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained. I am weary because of the wickedness of my children. I love that. This is just Bryce speaking. I love to think that the earth looks upon us as her children. We certainly are. And that she loves us and wants us to be happy and to do what's right and to worship the God of all of us. And so she's pained. Then the earth asks this question, looking upon the wickedness she sees day in and day out, when shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my creator sanctify me? that I may rest and righteousness for a season abide upon my face. I think that's the heart and soul of what Joel is trying to see and answer, is the earth who watches exactly what her children are doing and is pained, saying, when will I be cleansed? How long do I have to see this? So my take on the prophecies of Joel, especially, for example, the prophecies of the sun and the moon and the stars. I truly believe what Jesus said, that the writings of Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets have been and shall be. There are multiple interpretations. I'm very well aware of President Hinckley saying that this prophecy has been fulfilled, but I think it has multiple interpretations. To me, the prophecy of the sun turning to darkness and the moon turning to blood is answering the question that the earth said. 
the son who is a daily witness of the wickedness that's going on in the planet, is angry at that wickedness and is turning her face away from it. I can't look at it anymore. Now, what would happen if the son looked away from the wickedness of the earth? She would be darkened. Now, is there some literal fulfillment of the sun being darkened? Perhaps. But to me, that's a symbolic gesture of the earth saying, I can't watch the wickedness that's happening on this earth anymore. It's time for it to be destroyed. And the moon, who is kind of the witness in the darkness. So when the sun isn't shining light on men, the moon becomes the witness. The moon is seeing the wickedness of men in the dark. And red to me is the moon being angry. The moon is livid and angry as the moon watches the wickedness of the earth. And therefore, it needs to be destroyed. So for me, the interpretation of the sun being darkened and the moon turning into blood is an image of we cannot watch the wickedness going on in this planet anymore. It is time to cleanse. Therefore, Joel is seeing a cleansing of the earth. He describes the day in chapter 2, verse 2, as a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. Now, that's one way to see it. There's another way to see it, which Joel's going to describe as a great and glorious day, which is why the second coming is called great and dreadful. For some, it will be dreadful. For some, it will be great. And Joel is looking at the wickedness side and the need of the cleansing. So he's saying, this is a dark day. This is a gloomy day. Verse 10, the earth is going to quake and the heavens will tremble and the sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars will withdraw. The stars won't want to look because this is a dark day. The Lord will utter his voice before his army. So there's the destroying ones coming to cleanse. Ezekiel saw six slaughter weapons. Um, John in the Revelation sees four destroying angels on the corners of the earth waiting to destroy the earth. This is now the cleansing time. Yeah. So if you look at the end of chapter 2 of Joel, and this is what Moroni is quoting to Joseph Smith, Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32 are quoted by Moroni to Joseph Smith when Joseph's 17 years old. And Moroni says, these things are about to happen, but they have not yet been fulfilled. And so verse 28 of chapter 2 reads, it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord shall come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. 
There's a lot going on in Joel. In these 73 verses, there will be some bits that you won't understand or that you'll wonder about. And I think essentially what we're looking at is typology. And remember, this is apocalyptic vision. And so Joseph Smith said this. He said, whenever God gives a vision of an image or a beast or a figure of any kind, he always holds himself responsible to give a revelation or interpretation of the meaning thereof. Otherwise, we are not responsible or accountable for our belief in it. Don't be afraid of being damned for not knowing the meaning of a vision or a figure if God has not given a revelation or interpretation on the subject. Now, in the show notes, we do geek out extensively on some of the details of this book. A lot of this we're getting from Kent Jackson. He's done a lot of work on this. And I really like what he says, where he says this. The symbolism in apocalyptic vision is much different from metaphor, the literary imagery that is used so much through the Old Testament. Metaphor is supposed to be understood. For the most part, it is easily comprehended, especially if you know and get into the culture, history, and language, and the geography of these cultures. But apocalyptic vision, in striking contrast, is meant to be understood fully only with the help of revelation. This revelation and this vision usually requires an angelic interpreter or companion revelation to unlock the meaning. That's why when we read John's Apocalypse, what's commonly called the book of Revelation, that's why we have section 77. Section 77 is as if you have an angel who is an interpreter to help unlock it. And so I really think that's important. I think it's okay to read some of this in Joel and say, you know, I'm not really sure. But it clearly does tell you in the book of Joel that there's going to be some rough times, especially in chapter 2, verse 31. But you can also balance that with verse 32 of chapter 2. If you call on the Lord's name, you'll be delivered. And the Lord does want to pour out his spirit. And so I believe that. I think that we can maybe not focus on the negative and look at, okay, but what is the positive we can pull out of this? Yeah. He calls this the great and dreadful. So there are some dreadful things coming, but what are the great things that are coming? One thing I love is in verse 16, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. And then this phrase, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. That is a beautiful description of the latter days. The bride is coming out of her closet. The image of the apostasy is that the woman went into the wilderness. She is now coming out of the wilderness and that the bridegroom is coming forth. Jesus is here. I know we talk about a second coming in glory, but how long has Jesus been here? He made an appearance in 1820. He has been here repeatedly. He appears in the Kirtland Temple to accept it in 1836. The bridegroom has come forth out of his chamber. His voice has been heard. His face has been seen. He is here amongst his people. And the bride is coming out of the wilderness. And she is beautiful. And she's growing. I love verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Repeatedly now, a prophet has declared that God will do many mighty works between now and his coming. 
And there it is in Scripture. The Lord will do great things. And then I just love the next three verses. Be not afraid. Yes, there are terrible things coming. It will be a terrible day. But the Lord will be with his people. Be not afraid. Verse 25 is a beautiful prophecy. I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. When God is with his people, no matter what pain we experienced in the past, he will make it right. This is symbolic of so many things. I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. I will bring back the loved ones that you lost, that everyone you loved that was righteous will be with you during the millennium. Verse 26, ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord. Do not think that this is a horrible time to live. And the closer we get to the second coming, the worse it's going to get because it's going to get better for those who see it as a great day. They will be eating in plenty and satisfied, praising the name of the Lord, who hath dealt wondrously with you. How many times is the word wonderful associated with the restoration and the second coming? That God is dealing wondrously with us, and my people shall never be ashamed. 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I'm going to repeat that. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And I remind you that our modern-day prophet stood up in the October 22 conference and said, my dear brothers and sisters, so many wonderful things are ahead In coming days, we will see the greatest manifestations of the Savior's power that the world has ever seen. Between now and the time he returns with power and great glory, he will bestow countless privileges, blessings, and miracles upon the faithful. That is is the day in which we live. Joel said, ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And then we get to verse 28, which Mike quoted. He is going to pour out his spirit and revelation and dreams and visions upon his people. From, I love that he even says, the servant and the handmaids will receive great manifestations of the Holy Ghost. Everyone, the common people, children, will receive marvelous manifestations. The very first words of this restoration are being fulfilled. The Father stepped forward and said, not just to Joseph Smith, but to every one of us, this is my beloved Son. Hear him. That's the day in which we live, this glorious day. And then we get to verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. I know some of those wonders will be scary like earthquakes, but there will be so many other wonders. I hope that as you read Joel, you won't focus on the dreadful part of the day. It will be dreadful for some, 
but you will focus on the great and glorious day and that you will see so many fulfillments of these things. Therefore, fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord is doing great things. That is my witness to all of you. Before we close out, I want to look at Joel and see some temple images. A lot of this is going to be in the second chapter of Joel. And so we see at the beginning in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where a horn is blown for a communal fast and lament. I look at this as an encouragement to come to the temple. The priests are at the porch and the altar in verse 17. That's at the temple. Note that the bridegroom comes out of his chamber, that's in verse 16, and the bride is coming out of a hoopah, and it's going to be called a closet, but I think a, a better translation would be like a wedding canopy. And so the literal sense of the reading of 16 and 17 is that even if you're getting married, you need to come to the temple. We're gathering everybody, and if there's anybody who has an excuse to not come to the gathering, it's this newly married couple but they're being encouraged to take a time out on the wedding and come to the supper or come to the ceremony. I think that's a, a very good Peshat reading. But another way to read this is in the context of the divine marriage between Jehovah and his people that's embodied in the first Israelite temple festival. You see, in this setting, Christ is the groom and the bride is coming out of the chuppah. That's the Holy of Holies. It can be read as a chuppah, this place of fertility. And so notice in that setting, in this temple setting, the floors are full of wheat. That's chapter 2, verse 24. That's an image that could simply mean that Israel will be fruitful or that the saints are at the threshing floor. Remember, that's the foundation of the Holy of Holies. That's the stone at the base where the seeds are brought. And remember, we are the seeds. These are all codes. And so they can be interchanged with each other. And so these seeds are liturgically brought into the presence of the Father. They are brought to the floor, and then once they're brought there, notice what it says. It says that they will eat. That's Exodus 24, where they eat in God's presence. Section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants talks about this. So does Revelation 19, where the saints are brought into the presence of God and allowed to eat in God's presence in what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you look in Revelation 19.9, it literally says that the people that come to the marriage supper of the Lamb are the makarioi. Those are those that are in the state of the gods. It's translated as blessed, but I like that translation better. In other words, those at the marriage supper are in the state of the gods. And these saints, I love verse 28 of chapter 2 of Joel, the saints are men and women. This isn't second person plural masculine. It's the men and women that are perfected and brought into the midst, verse 27, and they're not ashamed, verse 26. And they have visions and they prophesy openly, chapter 2, verse 28. I mean, this is everything we see in Nephi's vision. And then in verse 32, it says they're delivered in Mount Zion. And then if you go to chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, they're dwelling in God's presence they're not put down, and they're cleansed. They're cleansed from the blood of the world. That's chapter 3, verse 21. So clearly, this is a temple vision, and it's prophesying of the saints coming unto the Lord, being made perfect through the blood of the covenant. And that's the end of the Book of Mormon. So to me, Joel chapter 2 and 3 
is so awesome. And it really is taking us liturgically through the steps all the way to the sacred embrace of the Father and the Son and being perfect without spot. It's just read a little differently, but if we kind of unpack some of the code, it's all there. Therefore. What's the therefore? Are there difficult things coming? Yes. Do we read and see them on the news and in television? Yes. Will the earth cry out for cleansing? Yes. Will the sun be so ashamed of some of the things that are happening on it that it will turn the other way symbolically, maybe even literally? Yes. Will the moon be so angry at what's going on that it will be red like fury? Yes. But therefore what? I love chapter 2, verse 13. Now, in the olden days, when they got really bad news, when they saw something really tragic, they would rend their clothing. So now the Lord says, therefore, here's the therefore, rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. That's the therefore. Rend your heart and turn to God, and you will find safety there. This is how Joel ends. This is chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord, I'm going to say this slowly and emphatically, the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord God dwelling in Zion. Of that reality, Mike and I stand as bold witnesses. And with that, we thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we cover Amos and Obadiah. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.